One of the really interesting characters of table tennis is Dot DeLow, who at age 95 became an overnight sensation when she was the oldest competitor at the World Veterans Table Tennis Championships in Bremen, Germany. Before starting table tennis, she had never travelled overseas. Her son encouraged her to start table tennis and move away from the life that she had had of working in the cotton mills and raising her family. Her son was pretty worried about mum travelling at that age, but she always returned and always had some really interesting stories and tales to tell of her exploits. Thanks for joining us on the Ask the Coach show this week. Our theme, table tennis for all. Now, let's hear some more about the inspiring Dot Delo. Apart from playing, she also was the oldest volunteer at the 2000 Sydney Olympics, where she did get the opportunity to get out onto the table and do a little bit of an exhibition for the crowd in one of the breaks during play. And the crowd was very, very appreciative. They started yelling out, Doddy, 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 Oi, 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 which relates to the age-old war cry of Aussie, 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 Oi, Oi, Oi. Dot achieved a lot with her table tennis. She was the over 80 women's singles champion in 1992 in Dublin. She also won the over 60 women's doubles and she also won other doubles titles. It just goes to show what a person can do with table tennis and what an inspiration to show that you can play table tennis and sport in general to a very old age. What a great story. Now let's hear some more from Alois about his experiences ranging from coaching in remote Pacific islands to coaching Paralympians. Tell us about your trips to Vanuatu, Alois. Vanuatu is just this small little Pacific country, um, very small place, but they do have a lot of table tennis there and it's been developed over the years. So when I first went to Vanuatu, I remember spotting a young player, Joshua Shing, who was just learning how to play a forehand and backhand. And Joshua's progressed quite a lot now. He's uh, managed to qualify for some Olympic Games. Yes, so he's, uh, he's, he's representing Vanuatu in Rio. He qualified through the Oceana qualification system and uh, has now been training in Melbourne as well in preparation for Rio. Now, it can't be easy for a player from Vanuatu to develop their game. It isn't because we see this a lot, you know, so players in developing countries um, with small table tennis populations make it really difficult to develop because one, they're not getting quality opposition and two, they're just not seeing uh, table tennis played at the highest level. Yeah, so obviously there's a lot of sacrifices for him to, you know, get to that level. Yes, a lot of opportunities that he's had. So he was able to travel overseas. He was able to uh, go to China and train as a very young player um, and training in um, other areas as well. They also have Chinese coaches that come, that come to Vanuatu and are able to train their teams as well. Mm, and also, Alice, you're coaching the Australian Paralympic team. Yeah, so that's, that's a great opportunity for me. So um, I coached the Australian Paralympic team in London and will coach them again in Rio. Uh, 
so coaching the Paralympic team is one of the real highlights for me of my um, table tennis. I get to work with players of such varying abilities. So I get to work with players with intellectual disabilities and physical disabilities. So the physical disabilities um, range from um, players with just um, minimal disability right through to players uh, that are um, confined to wheelchairs and live their lives in wheelchairs, but you should see their skill level when they get onto a table tennis table and in their wheelchairs. Now, interestingly, one of those players, Alloys, recently got paired up with Joshua to play in a doubles event. Yeah, real twist of fate. So um, Joshua is here from Vanuatu training. Um, Sam von Einem from Adelaide came over as part of his preparation for the Paralympics to play in um, the Victorian Open uh, event as well. And they got paired up together in the men's doubles. And how did they go? They were winners. They were the winners of the men's doubles at the Victorian Open. So a very prestigious um, title in Australia. And to have a player from Vanuatu, an Olympian, a player from Adelaide, a Paralympian, meeting together, being thrown together, never having met each other before or talked to each other before and uh, ending up winning the title. The tip of the week this week is how to practice with players that are weaker than you. The key with practicing with players that are weaker than you is all about which drills you choose. Let's think about a few um, ideas that you can use. So for example, if the other person um, doesn't have a very strong backhand but has a reasonable forehand, then I'm just going to concentrate on playing the ball to their forehand side. If I'm working on my footwork, I'm going to play the ball just to one position and I'm going to get them to put the ball into the positions that I need. Now, if they can't cope with the speed that you play at, just play it slower. They might be able to play the ball slower and control it to the two positions that you're looking for or the three positions. And that's still useful, you know? So instead of playing faster, you're just playing control and just working on the actual movement, making sure you're getting the movement right, the action correct uh, when you get there as well. You might even move a little bit further back away from the table to give them more time and do a similar sort of footwork drill. So you can see there now, we're making it a little bit simpler for the weaker player and a little bit more difficult for the stronger player. You could even get them to play anywhere on the table. With your match drills, instead of doing your best serve, just do a simple short serve that you know that they're going to cope with. What you're looking for is you're looking for that third ball um, attack perhaps. So I'm gonna do a simple backspin serve and really practice my transitioning from the serve to the next ball and then really working on making sure that I play that next ball on the table consistently. Again, let's just pinpoint one area for the weaker player to focus on. So this time I'm going to topspin all the time that first ball to their backhand side and they are allowed to play the ball anywhere. So I'm going to serve it short to their backhand. They're going to push the ball along anywhere. I'm going to make my top spin into the backhand and then they're going to play anywhere. Again, simplifying it for the weaker player, making it harder for the stronger player. Another great 
tool that you can use is multi-ball. What you need to do is just train the weaker player to be able to feed multi-ball. It is really simple to do with a little bit of practice. We have a course on multi-ball in our lessons, so just go to the lessons, check out the multi-ball uh, lessons and you'll find out how to teach that weaker player to feed multi-ball. They'll be able to watch it as well and get some tips. And very soon, you're gonna be able to be able to train at a really high level just using multi-ball. So there's absolutely no excuse for not practicing with a player that's weaker than you. You can always find something beneficial to do. The drill of the week is the pin skills drill, but using multi-ball. The pin skills drill involves four balls. So you've got a backhand from the backhand corner, forehand from the middle, backhand from the backhand corner again, and then forehand from out wide. Let's have a look at what it looks like. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. So at the very basic level, the ping skills drill incorporates a couple of things. It incorporates some switching between your backhand and your forehand a couple of times, but it also then involves some movement out wider to your forehand. As the player starts to get better, and with Jeff it might take a while, um, as the player starts to get better, we can start to increase the pace, and then you can also start to increase what you're getting Jeff to do. So what I'm gonna get Jeff to do is I'm gonna get him to top spin um, on his forehand side and block on his backhand side. Good. So he seems to be coping pretty well with that. So I'm gonna just increase the speed now. So you can see the ping skills drill really useful for a lot of reasons. That switching, but you can also then incorporate different things into what you, you're trying to achieve. Top spinning, for example, you can be controlling on the backhand, or at a very advanced level, you might want to do top spin on all the four balls. Remember when this week we're going back a little over a year to look at an event that will hopefully get bigger and bigger. It was April the 6th, 2015. There were 158 registered events in 70 countries. It was the first World Table Tennis Day. World Table Tennis Day is an initiative of the ITTF and trying to promote table tennis as a sport for all. So what sort of activities did they have? They had exhibitions, tournaments, they even had tournaments with three generations involved. So you had to get a team with a player, their parent and their grandparent in the team. What a great initiative and just showing that table tennis can be played 
by every age and in a lot of different countries around the world. We've now had World Table Tennis Day in 2015 and 2016. So this is an event that the ITTF will run each year. Let's start to think about what you can do for World Table Tennis Day on April the 6th, 2017. Go to ttforall.com and register your event. Start thinking now what you can do to help to make table tennis the greatest sport of all. It's time for the tournament wrap. For the tournament wrap, we're going to be talking about the Paralympics and we're lucky because Alois is going as a coach. So Alois, tell us a little bit about the Paralympics and the types of events they have. Yes, so there are um, 11 different classes um, in Paralympic table tennis. So classes 1 to 5 are for wheelchair athletes. Classes 6 to 10 are for standing athletes. And class 11 is for intellectually disabled athletes. So with the classification, so um, class 1 is the um, least functioning um, players. Class 5 is the highest functioning wheelchair athletes. Okay, so that's just in terms of their movement and mobility? Yeah, movement, mobility, um, and really they're trying to make it more functional. So how does it affect your ability to play table tennis? Okay, interesting. Okay, and then for the standing, uh, similar concept? Yeah, that's right. So classes 6 to 10. So class 10s are the highest functioning. Class 6 are the lowest functioning physically. Um, With the class 10s, Interestingly, a lot of them are very high-level um, athletes. Um, I suppose the most famous uh, table tennis athlete is Natalia Partika, who has, re- has represented Poland in both the Olympics and Paralympics um, for several cycles now. Wow, what a, what a story. And Australia's also got a good story along those lines, Alice. Yeah, absolutely. So for the first time ever, Melissa Tapper... Um, has qualified for the Olympics and the Paralympics and has become the first athlete in any sport in Australia to qualify for both events. So uh, making real history in sport in Australia. Great. Okay, so those two um, players, yeah, must be pretty impressive to watch them competing. They are. They're they're very impressive. So Natalia has been ranked in the top 50 in the world in able-bodied play. Um, and what Natalia has is she has um, her arm cut off uh, around there, so she holds the ball in her elbow to throw the ball up when she plays. So um, I suppose functionally a small disability, but it still does affect her balance and it affects her ability to throw the ball up when she's playing as well. But you should see the level that Natalia has achieved. Mm, very impressive. So how do they classify the players into those different ratings, Alice? Yeah, so the classification system is a really difficult one because they do need to take into account um, how functional they are to play table tennis. So players, when they're being classified, uh, firstly, they get put on the medical table and um, the classifier will poke and prod and lift and, um, and really um, put the athlete through their paces. Um, physically, but then they will also do a practical component. So then they'll watch them play um, in the classification area, um, 
the classifier will play with one of the players and uh, get them to uh, just start to stretch and see what they are capable, capable of doing. But then, as the third part of the classification, they also watch them during that competition. So they'll watch them and just make sure that you know, the players aren't being sneaky and just holding back on uh, what they can do and watch them in those important matches and at those important times when suddenly they are able to move a little bit more or they, or they might be just confirmed as, OK, that is the limit of their ability to move or, or a turn or whatever it is. Interesting. So the classifier is a table tennis player and the classification is table tennis specific? Every sport has its own... Uh, rules regarding classifications? Yeah, so they have medical classifiers and table tennis specific classifiers. So uh, within the classification panel, there are usually three uh, classifiers. One will be um, a medical uh, classifier. So they might not have table tennis specific um, knowledge or background, but they do have medical background. So they will be able to go through reports from doctors um, and uh, sift through them and just see uh, physically um, and medically what the player is capable of. So is there much controversy about these classifications? I can imagine if you got graded up to a, you know, you're put in a higher functioning level than you thought you were, it could be really disheartening and disappointing? Always. Always controversy with classifications. And th that's because there are so many grey areas um, and the lines aren't clear uh, between a class 6 athlete and a class 7 athlete it might be just their level of functioning with one of their limbs um, so they, they um, often do a, um, a strength test in the limbs um, you know so they'll test each of your limbs you know so how, how much power has this limb got this limb and each leg as well um, and then they try to build an overall picture of what that uh, player is capable of as I said, always controversy, um, and uh, it's something that is difficult when you're when you're making um, those sort of judgments all the time. So um, the Paralympics coming up just after the Olympics. Uh, what what sort of tournament format do they use in the Paralympics? So they have teams events and individual events, um, a little bit uh, similar to the Olympic um, format. So we start with the singles events. And then after the singles events are completed, they have the teams events. So with singles, there are separate events for most of the classes from 1 to 11 in both the men and the women. Um, in the teams, often the classes will be combined to um, be able to generate enough teams to, uh, to have a viable competition. Yeah. Now... In Australia, definitely, Alice, it seems like the Paralympics are gaining more support and uh, being watched by more people. Do you, do you see that trend worldwide? Yeah, it definitely is. So Paralympic table tennis um, is a huge growth area and we're seeing every year, we're seeing um, new countries involved and new countries becoming involved at a higher level as well. So it's no longer just something that uh, players with a disability can do. It is really... an uh, athletic sport and a way for these players to show their abilities. Yeah, certainly is. So, everyone, look out for the Paralympics coming up shortly after the Olympics, and um, yeah, make sure you check out the table tennis. Some, you know, inspiring stories. Some, yeah, you're going to see a lot of different. Uh, as Alice said, 
the classes. You can see people in wheelchairs. You're going to see uh, standing athletes. There's also uh, the intellectual... Uh, Intellectually disabled. Disabled. Yep. So, right. yeah, so make sure you watch it. Very inspiring and it's uh, great for table tennis. It's now time for the questions. And remember that you can ask your own table tennis question using the Ask the Coach section of the Penguin Skills website. DK has a question for us about the rules of playing wheelchair table tennis. Well, DK... If you're playing singles, there's only one real change in the rules, and that is that you have to serve so that the ball travels out between the two corners of the table. So the ball has to travel out this way. So it's not allowed to, to go out wide there. You are allowed to serve it short, but as long as eventually the ball would dribble off the end of the table. So often the, you'll see the wheelchair players do a really um, skillful short serve that bounces close to the net and then just dribbles forward and that is a very good serve. So that's the main serving uh, change or that is the serving change with wheelchair singles. Wheelchair doubles becomes a little bit more interesting again. So with wheelchair doubles, uh, the wheelchair player will uh, be one on this side and one on the other side. Your wheel isn't allowed to go over that middle line. So you can't have one player sitting here and the other player just sitting over on the side there. So you have to have one player on this side of the white line and the other player on the other side of the white line. But in doubles, unlike in standing doubles, you don't have to take it in turns. So Either player can hit the ball as long as they can reach it from that position of where they're sitting on their side of the line. So you don't need to take it in turns. DK specifically then asked us about, but what happens if there's one standing player and one wheelchair player? And that becomes really interesting. So now the players still don't need to take it in turns. The standing player isn't allowed to have their foot past that middle line. Um, the wheelchair player similarly isn't allowed to have their wheel past that line. But you do not have to take it in turns, which makes it really interesting when you're playing with a wheelchair player and a standing player. So standing players, as you know, when we're playing, we're used to taking it in turns. And often when you first see a standing player play with a wheelchair player in doubles, they often forget to hit the ball when it comes over here. We've had a question from Tevia Alois who says, I was up in a game of doubles, two games to nil, and 10 at nil in the third game, and my friend who I was playing with said, should we give him a point, or should we just finish the match quickly? What is the etiquette in this situation? What should you do? Do you, do you beat them 11 nil and just prod their head in the ground, or do you give them a point and say, you know, you're not that bad, you got a point. Yeah, it's a really interesting question and one that uh, we wrestle with all the time. Well, sometimes. I mean, it's not... <laughs> How not... many times have you been up there, But what do you do? <laughs> what do you do? Do you give them a point? I think it really depends on the situation, the people that you're playing and the type of match that you're playing. So if it's a social game... Um, 
you know, it's probably good to just give them a point every now and then. Um, but personally, I wouldn't leave it till it's 10-0. I'd, I'd probably, you know, just ease off a little bit on what you're doing and, and uh, give, them a, give them a bit of a game. Um, if it's a competitive situation, at the World Championships, it would be interesting, wouldn't it, to see what happens when two players are playing each other in a reasonably competitive match. And sometimes it happens, you know. You just get away from the other person or they just get away from you and suddenly it's 6-0, 7-0, 8-0. Um, yeah, so, I mean, in that situation... You know, I don't think you need to give the other person a point. Um, but we often see that even at that level, the player will give, uh, give away a point yeah. to give them a point. And I, I kind of think it also depends on how you give away the point. I was at an Oceania Championships once, and you have a, a wide range of countries there. And I think there was a New Zealander playing against someone from maybe Tahiti who wasn't very good. And the New Zealander was up 10-0 and the Tahiti guy served and he just went bang and just hit the ball straight down into the table kind of like I'm giving you this point it wasn't like you've won the point it was like I deliberately did it so it kind of I think that would make the person feel worse than actually you know maybe you could just pretend and just miss long and then it yeah. oh I got a point it was a good serve or something yeah actually Tevia you had a good solution so what Tevia decided to do was just try to hit that ball as hard as he could on the return, um, hitting it pretty flat. If it went in, good shot. They win 11-0. If it misses, they get the point. And uh, I think what happened was that you did miss and they did get a point and you said that the crowd cheered. And that's great. Um, so it really does depend on the situation. It depends on your opponents, you know. Some opponents will feel really offended if you give them a point. Um, and other opponents will be very thankful if you give them the point. So it's probably just a little bit of trying to gauge the situation. Yeah, it's certainly hard to know what to do. Uh, I don't know. I'm trying to think. I don't think I've been up 10-0 very often, Alice, unlike you. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. All the time. Well, see, I play Jeff quite often. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, but I think I would just maybe just play it a bit easier and if they win the point, they win the point. If I win it, they win the point. Kind of like what Tevia said. Yep. But we'd love to hear your thoughts, so uh, just leave a comment on the blog or on the YouTube channel and let us know what you would do if you're up 10-0. As you know, the theme for this week's show is table tennis for all and nothing brings us all together more than embarrassing moments. And Joshua asked us a question about what is our most embarrassing moment in table tennis. Now, I'm answering this question because Alois is too perfect and doesn't have any embarrassing moments. Um, but one embarrassing moment I can remember is I was overseas in China training with uh, the Chinese and we couldn't really communicate very well with each other because I don't speak very good Chinese. And, um, yeah, I was training against this one particular player and he was really good. So I sort of got forced back from the table and was lobbing and lobbing. And then he did a drop shot. And I'm like, I'm going to get to this ball. And I came running in as fast as I could and just smashed the table. And it must have moved about a metre. Nearly took this guy out. Everyone around started laughing. And people started going like this, like I was a bull. And um, it was pretty funny in hindsight. But quite embarrassing at the time. So if you have an embarrassing moment, please share it with us, leave it on our blog or on the YouTube channel. Love to hear your stories. Johnny's asked us a question about losing to players who he thinks are worse than him. Alice he's been playing for about six months, getting a bit of coaching, but when he plays these players that just are beginners, 
he gets all stressed out, loses to them, thinks his money on coaching and his development is all being wasted. Do you have any tips for Johnny? Yeah, so Johnny, firstly, don't worry about those sort of results. Um, think about their relative ability. Um, and, you know, some players, when they start, they may not have played table tennis, but they might have done other sports and they've got other sort of experiences. And they might just be um, a little bit more natural at playing the game. That's fantastic. That's great. So don't worry about the fact that you've been playing for six months and they haven't. The other thing you need to think about is just starting to think about the strategies of what they're doing and how they're winning points. So if you can start to explore that, then you're getting something positive out, out of that experience. So think about why they're winning points. And it might be because they don't have developed technique and they might be playing some awkward sort of shots at you um, that you need to cope with. So that's a really good um, thing to think about and to stay a little bit positive about what you're doing. So if they're playing these awkward shots and winning points, should you copy those techniques and use those awkward shots? Ah, that's a trap for for young beginners. Um, Definitely not. So why do you want to learn better technique? Better technique. Because that better technique is going to enable you to reach a higher level eventually. So it might take a bit longer because you are developing a different technique, but in the end, that's what we really encourage Learn that good technique, which is going to get you to a higher level. Okay. And I guess the good technique, to summarise, it means hitting the ball properly so you can generate lots of topspin, and the topspin drags the ball down, so then you can hit the ball harder. So once you develop the, top, the proper technique, you can hit the ball much harder and will be able to overpower your opponent who's doing these funny shots which they can't hit as hard. Yeah, correct. So that, the, the top spin is one thing, but then also even if you're pushing or even if you're um, controlling the ball or blocking the ball, it's just having good technique for those strokes that later on will enable you to do all of those things better as well. All right, so keep working at it, Johnny. Uh, keep perfecting that technique. Don't worry about other people. Everyone progresses at different rates. Just enjoy your table tennis, keep on practicing, and you will start to see the rewards. Next up is a question from Magic, who's 15 years old, plays at a club, and he goes there. He plays a few points, but loses, has to go back to the end of the line, so obviously he's got to circle round. So he's getting a bit frustrated, Alois, because he's not getting enough game time, and he wants to learn how to beat players that are better than him, what's a simple trick he can use so he can beat those players? Yeah, so I mean, there's, there's no real shortcuts in improving in table tennis. You sure? What about learning that backhand cartwheel chop shot? The backhand cartwheel chop... Uh, Surely you, that's going to win him every match he plays. If you uh, just want to go and search that up and just have a look at Jeff's attempt at the backhand cartwheel chop, don't even bother. I don't, I, th- I don't think it was me. I think it was Panda. Oh, was it Panda? Yeah. Oh, oops, sorry. Um, but if some, some proper advice, I think some simple things that you can do that, that will get you better a bit faster is working on your serve and your return of serve. So these are things that you can work on even by yourself with the serve. Develop a really good serve and you'll find that um, you increase your level pretty quickly. So when you're playing these guys, you know, unleash all your good serves, you might just sneak a few points ahead and um, start to win some of those games and get some more table time. Okay, yeah, sounds good, all right. So, yeah, work on your serve magic and your return of serve. 
probably two of the most critical strokes in table tennis. Yeah, they definitely are. And, and you know, it's something that we don't work enough on. You know, a lot of the time we go to the club or go to the game and we just think about our, our hitting, our forehands and our backhands. Think about your serve. Think about your return of serve. Perhaps take a few more risks with your return of serve. Okay, yeah. All right, hopefully that helps you out, Magic. Stan's asked us where you need to be to get a good opportunity to make a round-the-net shot. The more table you can see, the easier it is to get that ball around the net. If you're in that position, as you can see, you don't see any table. It's going to take a really big miracle to get that ball around the net. But from there, wow, look at the table that's opened up to you. That's where you want to really go for the round-the-net shot. The other thing that's going to help you is to be able to put some side spin on the ball. So why is side spin going to help? Because it's going to help you to get around the side of the net there and then open up the table and the possibilities of landing on the table. You can have a bit of top spin as well, but the key spin that you're really aiming for is that side spin to then get that ball to travel over the top of the table. Ping Skiller's Mail. This is where we talk about feedback from the last show. People leave comments on our blog or on the YouTube channel. Uh, we love hearing your thoughts. If you see anything you think we got wrong, let us know. Or if you see something you think we can do better, Surely that know. can't happen, can it, Jeff? Uh, unlikely. <laughs> um, yeah, but uh, last show, Alloys, um, yep. we got a bit of feedback, which was really inspiring. Yeah, got some, got, got some good feedback. So VJ, he's a regular corresponder. VJ Madge said, thanks Alois and Jeff for this wonderful edition. Yes, this chat show is really worth miles and miles to go for, for and listen. Thanks VJ. Thanks VJ. Um, so he said, uh, your discussion about hard bats took me back to my halcyon days. I remember how in 1964, that's the year I was born, that's wow. a long time ago, um, I won my first college championship playing with a hard bat against a player who my well-wishers told me in worried tones was playing with a new sandwich bat. Can you imagine 1964, <laughs> this guy comes out with a sandwich, sandwich bat, bat. You're like, oh no. It was also known in those days in India as the Dunlop bat because of its thick sponge. Um, I won hands down in straight three sets, 21-12, 21-9, 21-15, and I have still fond memories of how my friends carried me on their shoulders in triumph. Oh, well done, VJ. And well done, your friends, for just lifting you up yeah. and carrying you around. Well, he's not that big. <laughs> so, well done, VJ. Oh, great story. Yeah, and so also um, another interesting uh, little thing we had uh, from Ermintude on the YouTube channel said, when I play my dad now, he still uses his ancient hard bat and I use my modern soft rubber. He still destroys me. He's 66. 66 and still destroys him. Look, don't worry about it. 
you know, with time you, you'll develop your game and you will be able to overpower your dad. So keep working at it. All right, well, thanks again, everyone, for watching the show. Um, we love hearing your feedback, so give us some more. Make sure you check out pingskills.com, and we will see you again next week. Thank you, Alois. Thanks, Jeff. Bye now. love talking about table tennis here at Ping Skills, so if you've got a table tennis question, head over to pingskills.com and use the Ask the Coach section of the website. Who knows, your question might even get featured on this show. The music for today's show is from the YouTube Audio Library, and the song was called Baila Mi Cambia. Back in 1986, Alois won a big disco dancing competition, and recently I asked him what he recalled of that event. And I have still fond memories of how my friends carried me on their shoulders in triumph. Thanks everyone for watching. We'll be back again next week with another show. Until then, keep enjoying your table tennis.